Well, hello and welcome back to Fearless Questions, where we follow our questions to freedom. I'm your host, Jeff Blackburn, and today we are welcoming in our new friend, Kent Dobson. Kent, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Good, good. You guys, Kent is a, um, you're a scholar, is I guess how you're known, and a former pastor, but uh, Kent regularly leads tours to Israel. Um, he's also uh, released a copy of the Bible. You did a study Bible, the NIV First Century Study Bible I've got here, which is super cool. And uh, most recently, you just uh, releasing a book sometime last week, this week, somewhere in there called uh, Bitten by a Camel. And mm-hmm. um, so welcome to the show, Kent. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Now, um, Kent, I don't know how many of my listeners are familiar with your work or, or sort of your journey. Um, mm-hmm. But just to, you know, the subtitle of your new book, Bitten by a Camel, is Leaving Church and Finding God. And and um, we're going to spend some time just talking about that today. But before we talk about the idea of you leaving church, it'd probably be helpful for some of our listeners to kind of just get a little bit of background from kind of what you grew up in when it came to religion and the church. And um, mm-hmm. uh, you had sort of a well-known father um, and some pretty serious uh, religious church background experiences. I've, I've actually had some family connect to some of the same uh, traditions that you grew up in, but, um, mm-hmm. maybe just tell us a little bit about the family you grew up in and, and what that was sure. like. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for asking. My, my father, uh, was a minister and so was my grandfather. Uh, they were, they're Northern Irish immigrants. My dad came over when he was 14 and, um, and so, and they came over, my grandfather came over for ministry type purposes. Um, he wanted to get out of Northern Ireland and establish a church here and a ministry and that sort of thing. So that was the world I grew up in. Uh, my dad um, worked for Jerry Falwell and eventually sort of rose up in the ranks of the, whatever was going on down there, the moral majority and the school. And um, he became the vice president of the school. And so in terms of church, I mean, that's all. That's all I was around was church stuff, um, Christian school, um, and then also like the, I don't know what you would call it, but this phenomenon of the 80s, this explosion of Christian fundamentalism in politics. Of course, I was just a kid at the time, um, but I was just in that world. And then eventually my dad left and uh, took a, a church job in Michigan. Um, but I, 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 you know, I had maybe a... I don't know what kind of childhood. <laughs> I had a childhood inside the church. Uh, by the time I was in high school, I was like, what is going on? Um, but I did go back to Liberty. I went to Liberty, Jerry Falwell's college. I studied English there, and I played soccer. And um, I mostly enjoyed it. It's a weird place. And then after, after college, I was a part of Mars Hill. So this is the church that Rob Bell started. And Rob worked for my dad. And that was the connection. And then this church just sort of exploded here in, in Grand Rapids. And I did the music for a while. And about that time, I was just ready to wander further and further away from evangelical Christianity. And I ended up living in Israel for a few years, three years, going to graduate school. And that was the beginning of sort of the academic dismantling slash personal dismantling of a lot of what I was taught growing up. Um, and then since then, I've just been trying to put the pieces back together and some have fit back together and many of them have not. 
And eventually I took Rob's job when he left Mars Hill. Um, and I did that for four years and, um, and then decided, nope, uh, I'm not going to do that anymore. And stepped down. I like the way you say you took his job from him. You just kind of like pushed him off the stage and said, <laughs> this, no. is, this is mine now. And if people haven't ever had you, you know, you talk about, I've heard you talk about when you decided to leave. Um, I don't know if you would be willing to share that real briefly, just that experience kind of maybe the leading up, not maybe your last message there, but uh, I think you said you had an experience that like, man, what am I doing up here? Yeah, I had a couple of them really. Um, but I talk about it in the book. I had a kind of out of body experience one Sunday where I could hear myself talking, giving the sermon, but another part of me was saying, who is that talking? What is that guy talking about? And this wasn't just a, like a momentary flash, at least that's, that's not the way it felt. This was, it seemed to last all sermon and it, it really freaked me out. And, um, I don't know. I just, that, that, started me down a deeper path of, I don't know, who am I? What am I doing here? How did I end up doing this? Why am I doing this? Um, I even sometimes would think of St. Francis's two questions, who are you, God, and who am I? Hmm. Those were the questions. Those were the questions that just kept pushing, and I couldn't shut them down. But the problem is when you're a pastor, you're supposed to shut them down. You're supposed to, you know, yeah. keep, keep going, you know, and yeah. eventually I couldn't. Yeah, that's a that's a I've lived that. Um and I do want to say just as an aside to the listeners, um you know, I've followed along enough kind of with your story to know. I just want people to know that um I really see you as a very brave guy. Um and you know, you've done a lot of things um and your journey's been really interesting, but when we're talking about this book today, you know, I feel like you're someone who's really shown the courage and the fortitude to follow those questions you were just talking about when it was really inconvenient. You know, it's not terribly, like you said, as a pastor, it's not terribly convenient to begin having doubts about how this is all trying to work together, what we're really doing here. Yeah. Um, so when you left and one of the, you left for Israel, not necessarily knowing what you were doing, right? I mean, you knew you were going yeah. to study, but <laughs> I just was really attracted to at, at first, I think historical Jesus stuff, like who was this guy? Um, what, what is Judaism? Um, and I did, you know, I did not have an academic, I didn't have a professional plan, but I just sort of naively, um, moved my family, I, my wife, and I just had one kid at the time to Israel. And I say naively because I really did not know what I was getting myself into psycho spiritually or just the <laughs> going to the grocery store and, you right. know, normal everyday life. And it was, it was pretty difficult season, uh, really difficult time. But what I was learning, you know, I just was like, so excited and enthusiastic um, and surprised. I was so surprised to, to learn even simple things like what is the Bible and how did it come together and what was going on in the first century. And I mean, I had read books, but just to be able to have um, a graduate school calendar schedule and and all my time sort of focused in on that was a gift, um, even though it was pretty hard to live in Israel um, then. It was 2002 or three or somewhere in there when I first moved. 
Um, because tensions yeah. were still a lot higher then. I mean, I know it's always. Oh my gosh! Got tension, yeah, it was, but... This was this was the really the beginning, really the peak of the second intifada. So this is the Palestinian uprising. So we're talking suicide bombings and um, and the Iraq War started while we were there. We had to go to the mall and get an army issued gas mask. I mean, literally at the mall next to the shoe store, just stand in line and get your gas mask. So, I mean, and and part of us was like, what, what the hell are we doing here? And another part was like, I don't know. And, and we started to make good friends. And part of Israeli life is amazing. Like it's Mm -hmm. very family friendly and um, social. And um, we were part of a small church. Um, So, yeah, it was just, it was a wild, it was a wild time. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like, um, I mean, I'm really interested. I I think it's really uh, consistent with the rest of your story that this idea that you didn't really know what you were planning to do exactly, that seems to be very much a significant piece of the journey that you begin to describe. But I also wonder if you're standing in the mall, you know, waiting for those gas masks, is, uh, you know, is Mandy giving you the side eye or anything? Like, hey, what's, what are we doing here? I mean... Yeah, we both we both just sort of carried it, um, talked about it, but carried it also as I don't know. We were pretty young, and um, and it wasn't easy. That's that's what I would say about it. It wasn't easy, um, but I part of me at, at the time was like, there must be a reason or a purpose. I think that was a question, even if I couldn't quite formalize it. There must be a reason or purpose, and this this will lead to something. I'm not quite sure what. Mm. Um, and actually, uh, we we uh, lived there twice. Um, I finished a program, came back. We decided to move again for another program, and um, that kind of worldview was already had already collapsed. I think by the second second move, which is, you know, God has a plan or a purpose, and it's going to, the math is going to work out somehow. Um, it was a little bit more like following intuitions and desires with a lot more trepidation, mm. um, which is one reason why um, I didn't finish the second program and moved back. It was um, the Lebanon war started in 2006. So it's like, <laughs> wow. Yeah. And I was, the, I was actually on the border with Galilee when the war started. Um, with Lebanon, I could hear, you know, bombs. They're more like large metal objects flying through the air than like bombs the U.S. drops. Okay. Um, meaning that the Hezbollah fighters from Lebanon launching rockets into Israel. If you get hit by one, you're going to die. But it's not like it blows up a house or something. Okay. But these are these are the weird games you get into. Well, it's a war, but it's not that bad, and you know. <laughs> but way- eventually, it it was enough, and and yeah, we moved back. Well, and what does that do to your? I mean, I know you share a story where literally down the street from you, uh, you know, there's a suicide bomber or a terrorist bombing of some sort. I mean, what is? How does that affect you when you're there? Is it, you know, does it become very meaningful quickly, or is it just sort of like I don't even know what's happening here? Uh, my experience is that you kind of stuff it into a black bag that you drag around behind you. That's a image actually that Robert Bly, the poet, uses. It kind of goes underground. You kind of you kind of go into shock. Mm-hmm. I mean, because what are you going to do the next day? You know, you got to go to school. You got to 
buy groceries. You have so you kind of live with this low level dread, um, and it wears on you. It's one reason why both Palestinians and Israelis, it's really hard to um, come to the table and talk a political solution because there's this low level dread um, happening on both sides. That's mm. That operates in all kinds of unconscious ways, I suppose. Um, but I, maybe you become a kind of a suspicious person over time. I did. Um, who's safe? Who's not? And that wears on you. It wears on your heart and your soul. Um, yeah, that's what I'd say. Okay. Well, you know, I, I paint some of that picture because, or I wanted you to kind of share some of that because your story... Um, there's some very poignant um, metaphors and illustrations that come out of that tension in the in the area you were living. Um, I wonder if just to kind of lay out the analogy, sort of 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 being bitten by the camel. Are you comfortable just kind of sharing that that starting story from the book so that we can yeah. just lay out where yeah. we're headed with this? Well, there are really two metaphors that um, are related to the camel as the book sort of develops, and I owe probably the second half of it to my wife who pointed it out. But the first one is that I climbed Mount Sinai looking for some kind of divine encounter experience. Even if I could hardly admit it, that's what I wanted. Some clarity, some direction, you know, an experience of God. But at the top or coming down, I w was bitten by a camel, which seemed to kind of <laughs> summarize so much of my life up to that point. Like, where is the special place in the holy city, in the on the top of a mountain, in some specialized form of contemplative prayer, and you know the list goes on and on. How can I get to that special enough place where then I know this thing is for real, or my life makes sense, or meaning all of a sudden comes in a flash? But almost like the more I tried, um, the more I there were disappointments. And what I mean by bitten by the camel is that. I think that's just the way life is. And instead of ignoring these places that where we're bitten, where things don't make sense, what if we turned our attention toward them? So that's kind of hmm. the first image, opening image of the book. And I kind of follow that thread and come back around to it, I think, at the end. Um, and importantly, that came out of just a genuine... Like God, I'm just trying to hear from you. Like I'm, this exactly. is the best place. This is the best place I can think of. You spoke to Moses here. How about me? Yeah. You know. Yeah, and I, and that's how it felt. It was, you know, I can be cynical. I can, you know, be cynical about the church or whatever or the Bible even, but not in that moment. And this was like, no, uh, help. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I was. That's what was going on inside. Help. And, um, well, and you even said, not you, sorry, you even said in your, you were talking about picking up like a nasty hat, like, cause you were cold and didn't know you're going to be cold. And you were talking about feeling more and more defeated here. You are trying to chase Scott. I think that was even before you got bit by the camel. Yeah, it's and true. That just felt very, pro, you know, profound as I was like, wow, I'm reading this guy's journal almost here. It's like, here he is chasing after God, the best he knows how, and he's having to pick up nasty hats and dodging camels and like why is god yeah. making this so hard for you it's is the feeling you seem to get you know yeah you know rilke the poet he, he has a poem about wrestling jacob wrestling the angel 
And the final line of the poem, he says something like that, he doesn't say the point of life, I'm adding that, but he says, is to be defeated by greater and greater beings. And I don't know exactly what he means by that, but that's the way it felt, just a defeat, followed by another defeat. Even even a, even simple defeats, like I wanted the Bible to make sense, and it didn't quite make sense in the way I was told it made sense. That's a defeat. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought God had a plan, except experiencing firsthand the the horror of a random suicide bombing, and it is random. It's where am I gonna just walking down the street with a suicide belt? You know, that was like no, that worldview. That's a defeat. That that does not make sense to me anymore, and and eventually they just it's like a cumulative effect. They start adding up, and um, you can't ignore them anymore. And hmm. I don't know. I think and people, I don't know. that so much religious advice is like let's quick make sense out of both tragedy and success, if whatever you want to call that, or mm-hmm. a, a quote blessing comes into your life. Oh well, run it through our quick theological filter, and make sense of it. Um, but what I'm talking about is, let's not make sense of it. These are places where we're being defeated by greater and greater beings. And what if we can turn our attention to them? What might happen? How might we grow up? Because um, that's what I wanted, just to grow up. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that sort of takes you probably towards the second metaphor I think you were probably getting towards was the border crossing stuff or the... Yeah. Well, I just... Um, this image of the camel going through the eye of a needle is this, I think the second metaphor. And what is that? Um, well, I use a kind of an archeological example where they have these gates that zigzag in order to get the camel through. You have to take everything off the camel. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Jesus is alluding to. Um, and that's what it felt like the further I went. Instead of, I need to put all this new stuff on the back of the camel, kind of like a new theology or new interpretations, or you thought the, the Bible was like this, you thought this verse meant this, but if you just do a little um, cultural background magic, now it all becomes clear. A little bit of that happened, but mostly it was like, no, things have to come off the camel, and the, mm-hmm. the load has to get lighter, and the burden of, um, of faith or of the tenets of faith that I was supposed to hold had to come off. and Or the border crossing is another, it's the same metaphor, just disguised, which is crossing the Palestinian borders, you learn to take very little with you. And that's what it felt like, crossing into a new spiritual country. I can't take the stuff that's made sense of my life with me anymore. I have to set it down and walk into the unknown. Um which is both really alluring, like that's the word I would use, and terrifying. It's like that magic mixture of those two things. Hmm. And that's, you know, that's something, if somebody would pick up your book, and I hope they do, and read this, um, that those two thoughts are kind of the allure and the fear that sort of both hover in the atmosphere together in these moments and in this journey. Um that's that's a hard thing to explain to somebody. It's also it's not the most like uh, marketable advert, right? <laughs> so that's I, don't, right. I don't think the the um, yeah. kind of popular level church that we see here 
um, at least in the States, wouldn't be marketing that. You know, it makes much more sense with the people seem to ask Jesus, like, hey, can we follow you? And he seems like, well, you sure you want to do that? And um, mm-hmm. <laughs> that seems to, to make sense of that more. But Yeah, um, but, yeah and oh, I was just was thinking of the, the naked, bloody guy. That's what I call him in Mark, who says he gets healed, and he's like, can I follow you? And Jesus is like, no, <laughs> you can't. Go home. Talk to your family about this. That's just like... That is not the American church. Uh, but it's right there. It's right there yeah. in the text, yeah? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I know that's a part of a thread that comes through um, your journey, at least in this particular book you've written. Um, it's, it would be fodder for a long, long conversation, but the nature of how we read Scripture is really um, pretty critical to this whole thing. And, and um, I know we might touch on here a little bit, but... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for some people where you talk about, hey, if you're going to make it through this eye of the needle um, with your camel or whether it's a border crossing, um, there's going to be these things you have to let go of to be able to move forward. Um, and you kind of talked about, um, you know, sometimes there's like the difference between the theology that we that we say we believe versus the stuff that we practically actually believe. Mm-hmm. And when we can't get through that when we can't seem to get into that new space, we really feel like we're trying to get to, we're left with this tension. Hey, I say, I believe this, but it's not fitting through the door. What do I do? What do I do here? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it, maybe this is the right time for me to ask you, you talked about um, this idea of a loyal soldier saying, I think you said Richard Rohr, maybe another, another guy mm-hmm. that you've worked with, but um, that felt like it was all connected. And I wonder if you might be able to describe that loyal soldier dynamic to us. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, um, you're not the first person to want to chat about that. What is that thing? It's it's very um, – so, yeah, I, I learned about it through Richard Rohr and later a guy named Bill Plotkin. Um, so the loyal soldier is um, part of your personality that has kept you safe up to this point, um, largely through childhood survival strategies. Nothing wrong with those. You have to survive childhood. But for me, it was – Things like, um, what does a good boy do? And these operate largely unconsciously, but this is the voice of the loyal soldier. And in order to stay safe, he feeds you messages. Mm -hmm. Don't do this. Don't do that. You should do this. You should believe that um, in order to be safe. That's the kind of lower level reasoning behind the loyal soldier's voice. And, you know, if, if you grew up in a really fundamentalist culture, you better believe in kind of atonement theology, although (laughs) they didn't say atonement theology, but that's what they mean, (laughs) believe in Jesus, because you're going to be tortured forever if you don't. Well, when you're a kid, you just do it. That's like, what else? How could you possibly have any other option? Because you would be psychologically and spiritually unsafe to do anything other than that. It would be crazy. Mm -hmm. So the loyal soldier ends up being good at his job in this sense because he keeps you safe. Well, those childhood survival strategies still function in adulthood. Mm-hmm. And, um, and especially like, you know, especially when you start to really, when your worldview starts to unravel a bit in any capacity, whether it's like, wait a minute, this, my marriage doesn't work. Or wait a minute, uh, I don't know if I actually believe what this guy in a suit is telling me from the pulpit anymore. And what might that mean, you know, sort of like the ripple effect? That's where things get, like, 
it's not just one thing at a time that you you see how this might ripple through my whole life then the loyal soldier is like don't do it don't go any further join a men's prayer group you know uh <laughs> Just read the Bible again, the whole thing this time. Maybe you missed it, you know. These are all strategies for trying to keep you safe, mm. but they tend to, to help us not grow up. And um, It's almost like there's this voice batting that stuff down, like tuck that stuff away. Your, exactly. your questions are leaking out the side. Clean it up here. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Well, you, and you, other, go ahead. Go. I was just going to say, and other people – in your life, they're not your loyal soldier voice, but they can activate it. So if you're a close friend, you start to just be honest and your close friend just can't handle it, you know? Um, shut shut that down. It's like Mary Oliver saying, one day you finally knew what you had to do and you began, and the voices around you started shouting their bad advice. Mm. Um, and so those voices all of a sudden from the outside, you know, help awaken that loyal soldier and say, ah, maybe they're right, you know? This is dangerous territory. Um, just stay put. Don't move. But the result is that you don't grow up and you don't get defeated by greater and greater beings. You just cope. Hmm. I think it's interesting that you use the language like the need to grow up. And um, I can't remember who I've heard say that, but uh, they talk about the fact and what other area of our lives do we not expect to mature and change as we get older but our theology, oftentimes, it's like we say, no, the thing you learn when you're two is the exact same way you're going to think when you're 70. And um, yeah. we, we just leave no, no space for a, for a spiritual uh, or theological uh, growth there. But, um, right. you know, um, this is a, the conversation here is it just it hits close to home for me. A lot of the, I, your book was far more uh, theological than I thought it was going to be just based off the title and kind of the, I thought it was just purely the story stuff of being in Israel and such, but actually um, in a very conversational way, you sort of take on some of those big questions of chasing God that you just couldn't hold together in the way you used to be able to hold them. Mm -hmm. um, and you do a fantastic job of, of um, helping people see where, um, you know, um, holding more loosely to what is, tried to keep you in control of God um, does not in fact prevent you from finding God. Um, mm -hmm. It just changes the dynamic. But um, one of the realities that you described and uh, you talked about, and you sort of alluded to it a second ago, when things go wrong, when, when your family falls apart or the things that everybody said were supposed to make everything good no longer worked. You said two things. One, you said it was the lucky few who get to have that happen to them. And um, I might have I might have shed a tear too when I read that part because there's been a few things in there that we've Jody and I've got to experience that that were painful things that we would never have chosen, you know, you'd never choose to go through them, and yet, you know, there's something that resonated there. But there is something lucky about getting invited in beyond the structures that don't work anymore. Mm -hmm. And along with that, you talked about this idea um, of a fruitful darkness that came along with that, and I just wondered if you could describe what what that was for you the fruitful darkness yeah just sort of the nature of that like yeah. as things fell apart what was this new that's a strange phrase for many people um mm -hmm. so i just wonder if you might be able to i don't know maybe paint a picture for what that looked like a little bit for you 
Yeah, what am I trying to say? I mean, <laughs> the reason why I chose a phrase like fruitful darkness is because I'm trying to describe something that is a little bit hard to describe. It's a little mysterious um, because it does feel like darkness. And what does darkness feel like? Darkness can feel like I don't know where I'm going. I really do not know. I really, really, in the, the bottom of my being, don't know. And I don't know how things are going to unfold. And I'm not, I'm pretty sure I'm not in control of this. I might try to control, but I'm not in control. And the fruitful part is that in spite of that, you have moments like the tiniest seeds where you feel as if something new is growing. And it's kind of precious in a way. This not knowing is kind of precious. And I think in, in the best moments of the fruitfulness, it's like, okay, yeah, something is growing that is maybe welling up from within rather than I read this in a book and I'm going to kind of apply it to my life. But no, something is like um, being born. And maybe it's like that combination of something is dying and being born at the same time. Maybe that's another way of talking about fruitful darkness. And there were even moments where I, did, was it, I didn't want to get out of it. Sometimes it felt like just plain old being depressed. Other times it felt like, no, this, there's a heaviness, but what might happen? I keep, I, now I'm all of a sudden I have Rilke on my mind again, but he <laughs> says, he says um, sink back into the source of everything. This is in one of his poems where he's, looking up through the trees, like laying on the ground, to sink back into the source of everything. And that sinking back is like this kind of fruit descent into the fruitful darkness, perhaps. You know, when I asked, I knew it was sort of an impossible question to, but I mm. still wanted to ask it anyway, because I thought maybe, maybe Kent's got the perfect answer to how to describe that to people. Mm. Um, because it is sort of hard to explain. Um, one of the things I was wondering about is as, as you were moving into that space, kind of a two part thing. I don't know. Was, um, was Mandy kind of at the same place with you as you went through or were you guys at different points along the way or, um, well, I think, um, just now I was thinking of James Hollis, psychologist. He says the first part of an, of an adult relationship, if you want to have an adult relationship, number one, Take responsibility for your own psychological and spiritual well-being. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in that sense, that was happening, but on maybe parallel tracks. Um, and yeah, she, she was on her own journey and I was on my own. And they were kind of sometimes mirroring one another and, and sometimes not. But that's just it. That's Actually, that's one of the creepy things about leftover from but not left over, still in evangelical Christianity, that you and your significant other need to be on the same page about things. <laughs> That's just another way of saying, don't grow up. Whatever, whatever <laughs> happens, whatever happens, don't go any further on the journey because this might disrupt the, yeah. um, the, the flow. But thankfully, um, you know, I think I put this in the book acknowledgments, but in, mo in most respects, Manny was much further down the road than me. Um, but just, um, on her, on her own path. So I was, I was really lucky in that sense. 
Well, and I, I appreciate that. And one of the other things I was sort of wondering is, you know, when you move into that sort of darkness you described, um, did you guys find it hard to talk to people about it as you were walking through it? And if it's too personal, we can, you know, skip past it. But like you kind of described this idea of knowing you knew what you weren't any longer, but you didn't really know maybe what you were exactly now or what you were going to be in the future. I mean, do you, did you find it hard to, to be open with people about that? Or did you have friends that you were able to, to connect with along the way? Heck yeah, it was hard. It was hard to be honest with yourself. That's the hardest part. But yeah, you, you, you realize um, that a lot of church life is about social acceptance. And that's a really important psychological need, psycho-spiritual need. Where, how, where do I fit in? But as soon as you start saying things that don't fit in, then you, yeah, I experienced isolation and confusion, and there weren't that many people I could talk to. Um, I got, uh, thankfully, I had a spiritual director, and if you don't know much about, or if your listeners don't know much about spiritual direction, it's like, um, they're, they're not directing you, like, this is what you should do with your life. It's actually the opposite. They're just listening. Um, but I had some really good listeners who were saying, uh, reflecting back to me, patterns that were true in my life, images that seemed important, phrases that kept coming up, and basically saying, you're okay. If you're in the fruitful darkness, that's okay. There's a whole, there are whole maps um, where this is an absolutely essential stage, like what the dark night of the soul being one. Um, this is absolutely where you should be. So I'd say, yeah, spiritual directors, um, the two that I've had in my life were people that I could be totally flat out honest with as, as honest as I could be with myself, I could be with them. Hmm. Um, but probably not, you know, elders at the church or, (laughs) or even some of the employees that I work with, although they're, when I was at Marisilda, I had some really really great people I worked with who were pretty open about their own stuff too. So, Well, and I, th- I think this is part of why your story is so compelling in many ways as an example. And uh, because you've been, I mean, you've done the things you did some stuff. You were on the history channel before the discovery channel, but mm-hmm. even some of those things that seem cool to other people, you start asking questions or suggesting things that you discover about history or the Bible. And that, that causes, that causes consternation and panic in the on the home team, right? Heck yeah, I got fired. I got fired from a job um, when I when I did my Discovery Channel program, which was like historical Jesus one hundred and one. What are the basic questions? Yeah. And um, I was teaching at a Christian school. I, I it aired on a Sunday. On Monday, they said you can't come to class. On Tuesday, I was fired. Hmm. Um, and that wasn't like a, how should I describe that? It was not, sometimes things like that happen to people and they feel like, well, I was doing the right thing and yeah. um, they're in the wrong. I just was more like, oh, this sucks. <laughs> I, you know, my students are not going to understand. And yeah. um, it was a blow. That's what I'd say. It was a blow. Even though I kind of knew, I didn't know it was going to happen like that, but I knew they're not going to like this because... I have no problem questioning things that are in the Bible. Um, and that's Christian schools don't love that. They, people pay money to send their kids to Christian schools so they can learn how not to question the Bible. <laughs> yeah. So, 
Yeah, and I and that's one of the things. I mean, I've got some like apologetics training, but um, you know, a number of the folks, not all, but a number of them that uh, that I've known along the way tend to want to use answers to stop the conversation. Mm-hmm. And uh, there does seem to be this beauty of of scripture being an invitation to ask even more questions. And and I think you even told a story. I don't know if you if you remember the um, one of your professors or something that when you were talking about the um, was it Abraham, the Abraham story about asking questions mm-hmm. and such? Yeah, yeah, the Akedah. Yeah, that's the binding of Isaac. No, he, yeah, Rabbi Moshe was his name. He was an awesome guy. And uh, he said, all right, here's the assignment. Go home and make a list of questions. Read the story, make a list, list of questions. That's it, and bring him to class. And I was like super prepared. So I had my few questions and students had theirs and we shared them. And he said at the end, he's like, you are so lucky. This, these are the only questions you have? I mean, I have so many questions. Uh, this story, th- there's so many loose ends here. And then he, then he said something interesting. He said, none of you even questioned God. You can trust a God who would say to a father, kill your son? I cannot trust a God like that. Mm-hmm. And this is like, you know, a guy with a kippah and like the tzitzit and the, you know, an Orthodox rabbi. And I just was like, all right, this isn't just about asking questions of the Bible, kind of like, what's the Hebrew word mean here? No, he means like the big existential questions the Bible can take and faith can take and Judaism can take. Um, Maybe evangelicalism has a little bit harder time with the big ones. But I was like, man, if if this is faith, you know, I'm just getting started, you know. (laughs) Um, anyway. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. I mean, cause uh, you know, there is this and you get into, in the book, you touch on a number of subjects. You talk about hell, you talk about the afterlife. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about all these big questions that, um, I, like I said, I didn't expect them to come, but when I look back, I'm like, well, of course you did, because these are the natural questions that so many people actually have, but just don't let themselves say out loud. And yeah. there seems to be, it seems like what you, in order to fit through the eye of the needle or the get across the board or whatever, you just said, look, I can't bear the weight of, of keeping these questions hidden inside anymore. And it's almost mm. like you're saying that God, you don't think that God ever intended you to keep them, keep them to yourself. Mm-mm. I don't think so. Mm. Um, you know, what would you say to people? Um, because inevitably there's going to be, there are people I know whether they're going through, you know, they've lost a loved one and all of a sudden the nature of God becomes or the nature of hell or, you know, the afterlife, all of these things suddenly come into focus. Mm-hmm. Um, they can't, they can't make sense of the tension any longer. Mm-hmm. Um, but all they have to go on is the, the, you know, maybe the religious community that's been a safe place for them. Mm-hmm. And yet they feel stuck. Like I want to move forward, but I, what, what would you say is a, is a next step? Because it seems like such a big move, um, what's that journey? What would that look like for somebody if they were coming to you saying, I don't know what to do with this? How do you normally approach that? Well, I don't know. I mean, a lot of it is um, very personal. This, you're, th- and what, what I might say to someone I hope would be nuanced and would, would take seriously their story and wherever they are on the, this thing called life, this journey. And um, I think 
you know, my dad died in the middle of writing this book too. So it wasn't like, it wasn't just theoretical thinking about the afterlife. You know, I was, was looking, looking at um, someone who was dying. So, but I think, you know, grief and tragedy are, have their own potent um, uh, wave that just washes over you. That's not the right time to say, um, are you sure you believe in heaven? You know, yeah. no, you just, you, it's most important to be with someone wherever they are. Now, the existential questions, the big ones, like, is, yeah, maybe this is not a big one to all people, but um, what is it, you know, is there an afterlife, for example, or um, those are going to come. They're going to keep working on people. And actually, death and tragedy is going to ramp it up, but, um, but in due time, like, uh, in due time, like, uh, everyone is in such a freaking hurry. We're even in a hurry spiritually. And like, I got to get there quickly and I got to figure this thing out. Well, actually, I think life just works on you. And a spiritual journey is turning toward that and finding spiritual companions or even a community that has the long game in mind, which is we walk with people through life. Um, it's just like a, a needed, important, healthy thing. So I don't, I don't feel like I'm answering your question because I feel like you just have to take people's stories seriously and, and their desires and their doubts and when they come and why they come um, and really avoid. If, we're, if you're going to take Jesus seriously, by the way, mm-hmm. where he says the spirit of God, whatever the heck that is, dwells within is like a river, is like a well that comes up. Basically, our job as human beings, if you're going to take that image seriously, is to allow that thing to happen, which means you have to take people's questions seriously and their stories seriously and not give answers. What the, what, what kind of, what good does a freaking answer do when on the deepest level, Jesus seems to be saying, those are given. Those well up from the mystery. So a, a guy or a girl with just an answer book, that's just, that's boring. Yeah. And shuts down the myster- mysterious flow. That's, a, that's a, an intuition I have, um, maybe. Yeah, like that perfect answer is almost like, hey, could you just give me a bigger cork to plug up this welling up question that I have, these feelings? Exactly. Um, and actually, a lot of times it's like if someone's coming to you with something serious and you're in a position of spiritual authority, you want to shut that down because it's really shining a big fat spotlight on your own inconsistencies and the questions you have and you don't like it. So it's much more like I got to shut this down in the other person so I don't have to look at it. That's what I think a lot of spiritual advice, including almost every book in uh, in the Christian bookstore shelf is doing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, the, along those lines, when you talk about people, they're almost like trying to protect themselves. There is this thread that comes through in in the story you shared and in your own journey where there, there becomes this need um, to make space for your own personal experience. Um, and that seems sort of simple to say, except that for so many people, it, um, you know, at least coming out of, you know, some of the Western traditions we have, 
where the self is is really and i guess you even wrote a chapter about that about the am i a problem for god but mm-hmm. this idea like am i okay like is it okay to not only be aware of what's going on inside of me but to give to give honor or respect to what i'm actually feeling and experiencing mm-hmm. um i don't know if you'd say anything to that or how the the importance you think that's played in your journey or yeah definitely um all the mystics, including the Christian mystics, say that it comes down to personal experience. That, and, and that's what's the Christian mysticism says that's what it means to have a relationship with God, is to have a personal experience of the divine. And that scares institutional Christianity because if the divine is like the wind, you don't know what's going to happen. Mm. So, but I would, I, so I think that's what, what, what Christianity points to at its best. And what does that mean? That means we have to learn to take our personal experiences seriously. And a lot of Christian advice is about not taking them seriously. Um, so it's, it's very counterintuitive. I would also add one kind of caveat is that, I don't know if this is true in your life, but for me, I have a couple of voices in my head. <laughs> and so some of it is like, what, what do I trust? And that, that question, what do I trust inside, is kind of the beginning of a more serious spiritual life. And there are voices in your head probably that you need not to trust. You need to go through healing and holding, and you might need a therapist for a while, and you might, again, long view before you can ever really... Um, begin to trust that kind of trust your experience um, because maybe your wounds are just screaming and they have to be paid attention to first. Um, Not that there's like some special order, but I just mean not everything that pops into your head. I mean, things like true self are overused. um, And even though I use it or things like the inner voice is overused because I could have an inner voice that would give me all kinds of bad advice. So Chick-fil-A now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) You have to get to know yourself. Um, and that's, that's a rich, um, human beings are a mystery. That's straight from you. Never forget that. When you look your spouse, partner, friend in the eyes, realize you are looking at a mystery Mm. that you will never never fully know. Well, the same is true of your own self. (laughs) Um, But it's just interesting. Christianity says, and that's where you find God. Yeah. That's, that's not as easy to to tuck into a sermon on a Sunday morning. Um, I know. You know, you talked about this. I mean, I think even in your own journey, I don't know if you mentioned it in our conversation or maybe in your writing, almost having sort of a post-traumatic syndrome experience coming out of um, some of the religious uh, stuff you did mm-hmm. um, or were a part of grew up in. Um, some of it was helpful, like you said, but then as you try to to separate out from some of that, um, there does seem to be this overlap you seen just between sort of just practical knowing yourself on a, um, you know, it doesn't have to be a Christian thing. You know, any counselor would could talk to you about, you know, the coping mechanisms that you had as a kid, helpful then, not mm-hmm. so helpful now. Um and I don't know if this connection happens for you, but I, I know I've heard you talk in the past about things like the ego and the soul. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if the, that's the connection I was making. Like there is this, there's this soul spiritual thing happening, but there's also a real, 
a real life ego involved too. And I wonder mm -hmm. if you might just say a yeah. quick thing about the nature of how they interact in the, in the journey. Yeah. And, and some of this, you know, I've just come to learn and, and believe in the last couple of years, but when I use a word like ego, um, I don't mean that negatively. I mean, it's your everyday persona. Um, it's your Myers-Briggs, you know, letters or whatever. Mm. Um, it's, and that's important to get to know. How do I operate in my everyday ego self, my persona in the world? It's how we ended up connecting on Skype. You know, you sent me a message. I responded, you know. The ego is involved. And the ego is, is how you move through the world. Um, and, I, and the metaphors that I like, the, the spirit is kind of above that. And religion and spirituality offers connection and transcendence from that ego. So there are moments, I don't think you can like float off the ground, but there are moments when your own ego, you tran it's, it's transcended and you have a experience of unity, of oneness, non-duality, whatever kind of fancy language you, connection with God, spiritual moment, experience. Um, so that's kind of on one end of the sphere. I put the soul on the bottom end of the sphere. And what is the soul? The soul is... Um, the face you had before you were born, your, your incredible, unique identity at its depths. It's much more like an image. It's, it's the incredible uniqueness. You know, spirit is transcending all that, but the soul is like, who are you really? That's Jesus in the wilderness, 40 days and 40 nights, trying to find soul. Now that's not to say God is not out there or the spirit is not out there, but it's it's a slightly different part of the path. And soulful people have have contact with that. They know who they are. They've they've tasted a bit of their true self and they're bringing that out into the world in their own unique way. Um, they're bringing their gifts out into the world in their own unique way. Um, so I kind of, I separate out soul and spirit a little bit. I got I got that idea from Bill Plotkin, if you want to know. Okay. Um, that's, that's, but that's been a helpful way to me. So what am I saying? I'm saying there's a soul journey and there's a spirit journey. They're all part of the same sphere, um, but it's been helpful to me to separate them out and um, a little bit. I don't talk too much about that in the book. Maybe that'll be the next one. Okay. Uh, but anyway, and so let me say one more thing. Yeah. The, uh, a mature person, their ego... Everyday persona ends up serving the soul and or the spirit rather than itself. And our culture is mostly full of people whose egos serve their egos. Everyone would agree with that, mm -hmm. you know, from politicians to pop stars. The point of life is for my ego to serve my ego. But the real gifted people who are bringing forth something rich and meaningful and needed in the world, they're probably both serving the ego is in service to the soul or the ego is in service to the spirit. Um, and that's a completely different reworking of, of your ego, I suppose. Mm. Uh, if that makes sense, it's kind of a metaphor. No, it does. It seems to be like more of a, a healthy, a healthy fuel behind the, what the ego is up to and stuff that way. Yeah. Um, hey, I, I don't usually do this, but you, um, there's so much of what you said in your book that, that talked about, um, making space, learning to hear your own voice. Um, I know you referenced the, the, um, the Mary Oliver poem, um, at mm. least one, at least the journey. Um, you wrote, you wrote down a, 
a uh, prayer of Thomas Merton's that was given to you. Um, and if you'll just allow me, I'm going to read it real quick because I just thought it captured really well what you're talking about. And if you want to say something about it, you can, but this Please. is, this is just for the people. If they haven't got the book yet, one more reason to go get it. But Thomas or, or Merton says, dear Lord God, I have no idea of where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean I am actually doing so. But I believe the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I'm doing. I hope that I will not do anything apart from that desire. I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will not leave me to face my perils alone. Mm. And I, I read that and I was like, man, that just like, I mean, it seemed to capture, you did a great, I mean, great choice by um, by throwing that in there. But what a profound, for people that are trying to figure out what is, what's Kent talking about, you know, mm. with this whole like, you know, this way of engaging God, that seems to be the posture of a man who, who, um, yeah, is holding on to mystery, but yeah. you know, trying to give space for the desire and such. Yeah. I mean, I just, I love that quote. It's almost, I mean, if people can imagine that there are certain times in life when you're at the edge of the forest and you're about to, you, maybe all the voices are telling you turn around and go back where it's safe, but something in you just says, I don't know, and I don't know if I'm going to make it, and I don't know the right way. And I, in Thomas Merton's case, I don't even know if I'm doing God's will, but I'm going to step into the forest. Mm. Um, and that's where that's faith. I mean, so much of what we've been sold is that faith is having beliefs that, that are like reasonable, and you know, you just, it all makes sense. Um, here's Thomas Merton saying, no, I'm in the forest, and I have no idea, and and I trust. I mean, what else could faith be than that, you know? Um, but, yeah, that's... So much closer to the idea of are you, is your faith in, in the Bible, or is your faith in this relationship with a, with a real God? That seems to be the major difference there. Um, hey, Kent, uh, one of the things I always like to ask people is, you know, we, we talk about being fearless questions here. Um, what are the questions that you wish more people were asking in, in your journey you see? Um, where are the elders? Where are the elders? Where are they? Um, maybe how do I grow? How, what, what does growing up look like? Is it possible for me to make it to adulthood? <laughs> right now, I think most of us are stuck in a kind of adult teenage spirituality and uh, way of being in the world where we're largely concerned about possessions, power, prestigiousness, fame. You know, we know that about ourselves, but how the heck are we going to grow up? Because the, the world needs healthy human beings, healthy spiritual human beings, adults, and it needs elders. <laughs> Where are the real elders? And is there somebody's feet I can sit down at for a while? Um, who's modeling this? Those are, those are our questions. Rather than whose 
famous right now and who has power and I don't know and what's going on on my social media feed or whatever but I don't know I think that's that's one maybe that's like a question of how to how do you grow up mm. um, that's what I wish people were asking more of yeah <laughs> no that's great man I that's um I've carried that question <laughs> I know it's something that uh, like we said earlier people are longing for space to I mean if we could find someone that we felt safe to um, to engage these questions you know that's um well, that's what we're trying to do here. Um, I don't know how effectively, but we're trying. Hey, um, can I want to respect your time? Um, if people, yeah, you've got um, kentdobson.com if people want to follow along with your stuff. Um, Bitten by Camels just come out. Um, you can get website, Amazon, all that sort of stuff, I, I assume. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think if they have not gotten the um, the NIV First Century Study Bible, it's um, it's one of those things where you've created all these notes about the early early Christian Jewish context that some of these scriptures are read read in or written in mm-hmm. that uh, might help give some fresh possibilities of the context that um, if people have not if you've ever wanted to say hey how do you you know how when they read your other books they'll say where does he get these insights about you know oh mm-hmm. that was a Roman thing that was a Greek thing not just a Paul thing and. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, so the study Bible is something they could get their hands on that you've done a good job of helping make yeah. that available for people. Um, yeah, in the meantime, anything else you got going on? You're still doing, do you uh, encourage people to come on your tours or your or your retreats? Or Yeah, I mean, I'm doing a couple things. I'm, I'm leading some retreats. They're, those are more wilderness-based things. Um, nature, a conversation between nature and the human soul and nature and spirituality. Um, those are small group things. Um yeah, and yeah, kentobson.com has that stuff when I update it. It has all the stuff <laughs> that I'm trying to do. Yeah, and when the book comes out, August 1st, um, then, you know, I'll, I'll give go on a – I'll travel around a little bit okay. and talk with people. So, yeah, the web, my website, kentobson.com, is probably the best place to go if you want to know what I'm up to. And I, I do still lead trips to Israel okay. um, occasionally, and um, if that's – you know, a field of interest for people, they can they can look it up there. So thank you. Especially if they don't just want the kind of like uh, popcorn and, and Coke version, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, Ken, thanks so much for uh, just sharing a little bit about your life and your uh, your journey with us. And um, hopefully we'll all get to follow along and, and hear more from you in the future. Thanks. Keep asking your fearless question because I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Ken. Yeah, take care.